Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web and he sighs, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. He's a strong, listen, buddy. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a ledge? Take a look overhead. Hey, there goes the Spider-Man. Episode 194 for September 2012. The Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast is sponsored by MailOrderComics.com. They have discounts that start at 38 and they go up to 75% off the cover price of new comics and trades. An example in this episode is on Ultimate Spider-Man number 17. In this one, Miles teams up with the Ultimate Spider-Woman, and evidently they have some sort of shared history besides just having the word spider in their name. Well, the cover price is $3.99. Mail order has it for just $2.47 which is 38% off the cover price. So check them out at mailordercomics.com. Alright, we're unveiling a new segment on uh, this episode. It's called Bertoni's Bios. And as we know, this is uh, a Spider Yoda Jr., as I like to call Josh. <laughs> I, could be, I could be Spider Kenobi if we're doing the whole Spider- Jedi hierarchy. Nice. You could be Spider Kenobi. And basically, Josh knows everything about obscure characters. And in Spider-Man's 50-year history, there's been a lot of obscure characters. And we're the inaugural edition of this segment is uh, we're hitting Flash Thompson's brother-in-law. Who I've never heard of before. Tell me the story of what's oh, his name. You've never heard what's his name? Yes, th- th- that's the question on everyone's <laughs> mind. You've <laughs> you've never heard of. Uh, Brad has not been prepped for this in any way, shape, or form. So he I have not. he doesn't know the characters. So um, uh, to go behind the curtain a little bit, Brad actually asked me to do this segment a year ago. We're just getting around to it now, and um, I'm glad that we're getting around to it now because otherwise I would not have had the time to prepare for, you know, the great tragedy in Flash's life, his Uncle Ben, his Gwen Stacy, of uh, the death of his brother-in-law, you know, because he, he is dead, um, just to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. Um, I, w- I was going to do Mindworm this month. I'll do him next month, because uh, there's a funny story going along with him. But Chris uh, reminded me in our in our little behind-the-scenes uh, podcast preparation thread that I, I really need to do Flash's brother and give him justice. Um, brother-in-law. Brother-in-law, excuse me. That, that's a very important distinction. Um, he has a few aliases. One of the aliases is, uh, <laughs> is uh, Jesse's husband. Um, that's what he's known as. The color of his eyes, well, we don't really know what color his eyes are because we've never actually seen him with eyes. Um, give you, I, <laughs> his hair color is mysterious, too, because we've never seen the top of his head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> okay. Um, over, over in Venom, um, you know, Flash has uh, made some bad decisions. You know, he was in bed with the crime master, not literally in bed, who turned out to be Betty's brother, Bennett. What the heck? But, you know, more on that on a different show, probably. Well, so they're ta- they're targeting Flash's family, you know, and Flash is on his way to save the various members of his family. But unfortunately, he was just too late, and he's on his way to his sister's apartment, Jessie. And uh, we've known Jessie. She was in, you know, some flashback issues as Flash's younger sister, and uh, she was in the Dematis Luke Ross run of Spectacular. Um, and she was in that Greg Weisman story, so we remember Flash's family, you know, and uh, they've shown back up in the Remender run, they were at the funeral, but the person who's been absent for all of this is uh, Jesse's husband, Flash's brother-in-law. 
because uh, we didn't even know he existed until uh, Flash goes into the room. I gotta save my sister. I gotta save my sister. Oh no! And it's like the Schrodinger's cat. This guy didn't exist until we found out that he was murdered, and we see him on the bed with his head cut <laughs> off and his eyes gouged out. Wow. <laughs> Who did this? The fly? Um, ja- ja- Jack-o'-lantern. Jack-o'-lantern. That, that, that's his M.O. He'll cut off the top of head. He'll, he'll, he basically makes his victims jack-o'-lantern heads. And uh, what got me about this, and Chris and everyone else who read the issue was, like, this guy, like, we didn't even know he existed, and Flash is like, no, my, like, let me read, let me read the page. Jesse's husband, Jack Lantern, must have come here while I was dealing with Toxin, while I was with Betty. Jack Lantern made short work of him, head spinning, my fault, if I had come here first. So, he, you know, he's feeling all guilty about this guy who's never been, you know, there's been lots of stuff with Flash's family in the Remender run of Venom, <laughs> like the funeral, and this husband was never there, and while Flash is on his way to the, the apartment, he's like, gotta save Jesse, not like, like, you know, when there's a husband and wife situation, he would say, I gotta go to Jesse and let's call this guy, you know, Bill, you know, which, because brother-in-law, B-I-L, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I gotta save Jesse and Bill, okay, I'm at Jesse, and even when Flash is in the house, before he goes to the room, there's pictures on the wall, and it's all of, like, Jesse and Flash, like, this guy doesn't even exist until, like, Flash opens that door and he's dead. And what gets me is that at the end of the storyline, you know, like, Flash is like, yep, all's well, it ends well, you know, I saved <laughs> Betty, I saved my family, this is sure a happy ending. Like, no, your sister's a widow now. And, uh, but luckily, uh, this happened in Venom 19, that's his first uh, appearance, and we get a post-mortem appearance in uh, Venom issue 22. We see a one-panel funeral where Flash is like, oh yeah, I had to bury my brother-in-law, <laughs> who still doesn't get a name. But, like, oh. it's, um, it, the reason why I picked this character is not only because of, like, the way he was introduced, which was so clumsily, like, there's no setup for this guy dying, but, like, when Flash sees his dead body, he's like, oh, right, this guy exists, and I'm very, very sad, this is all my fault, but then immediately forgets about him until, you know, the one-panel funeral. He sees him dead, he's like, he's like oh, it's my brother-in-law, not, not his name. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, even also, doesn't call him by a name. And, and also, Bill. if you follow the timeline of the Venom series, it sort of flips in and out of flashbacks and stuff, but there's a scene where he goes to the Secret Avengers, and the Secret Avengers say, we've been trying to call you for two days. And so there's been two days since the that scene, and obviously the last time the Secret Avengers saw him, and the death of his brother-in-law and the funeral must have occurred within these two days, or else the timeline doesn't work. So they buried his ass <laughs> we don't see the tomb. We, we, we don't have a name for this guy, and he—he's just Jesse's husband, who didn't exist until Flash opened the door to that bedroom. It was gotta save Jesse. Here's Jesse. Do we know Jesse's last name? Because uh, he could be. <laughs> we assume it's Thompson. No, I'm talking about her married name. We don't know. In law, because I was gonna call him. <laughs> What'd you say, Don? I missed it. In law, Jesse. In law, <laughs> Bill. In law, yeah. Brother in law. Wow. Colin Bunch. If you listen to this, he's gonna be like, he's like, all right, fine. They want a name for this guy, and like, his name's gonna be Josh Bertoni. I'm the corpse. I was Flash's dead brother in law. Wow. Well, let me defer to the writer on the panel. Um, what happens if you kill somebody that you've never heard of? 
uh, you have nothing. The main, character, the main character is upset about this character you've never heard of. If you kill someone you've never heard of, nothing happens. It's like a tree falling in the forest when no one's around to hear it. Because there's no emotional impact when we remove somebody that wasn't there. <laughs> I, was, I looked at Flash is like, you know, sad. He's like, oh. no, Jesse's husband whom I can't remember his name. No. <laughs> How can I let this horrible tragedy happen? It's all my fault. Oh, well, off to save Betty from her demented dead brother. <laughs> oh, man. Now, we have to mention, the Venom book is really, I think it's pretty good. Besides that. This is just, I, I enjoy it. Chris, you, you think it's pretty good. I do. I mean, like, I don't always like every individual issue. I never hate it. I have never hated the series, but sometimes, like, it's mediocre and... You know, sometimes they'd screw around with characters that if I cared about that character, I might have a stronger opinion about it. But overall, like, I, you know, it keeps me excited to go back to the comic book store every two weeks when it comes out. And, you know, I definitely don't feel that way about any other comic book. I haven't felt that way about Amazing Spider-Man for years. So it is something that I enjoy very much. Kevin, I don't know if you read it, but I think you'd be ticked about Toxin is now Eddie Brock. Yeah, I've, I I just read Crazy Chris's reviews every month, uh, which which yeah. are excellent. Um, but for me, it seems to be the book where my favorite characters go to die, <laughs> literally or figuratively. Literally, as in Pat Mulligan apparently off screen when they screwed up Toxin, and now figuratively we are murdering Hellstorm's character to death. Yeah. And poor Bill. To- yeah. to- Toxin was killed Bill off panel. Toxin was Bill killed off panel by Blackheart. Like, yes, that Blackheart. Which is like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, what? Although I do, I do have to thank Rick Remender for killing him off panel and only saying he was killed off panel in an interview because that means it's non-canon, so somebody can go back and fix it later. <laughs> Blackheart does say like this Toxin symbiote was worth the killing it took to get. So like, who else would he? be talking about yeah but you know aunt may was quote unquote dead um let's let's just say if we don't see a body it's comics <laughs> true you didn't lose me i'm here oh okay who did donovan. i lose you lost well, don. oh i lost donovan okay so josh uh is there any other characters that you want to hit up um in the future of this segment the mind worm you said yeah definitely definitely mind worm and uh I'm maybe Bennett Brandt down the road just because of what recently happened to him, but I don't want to become too predictable by doing Betty's family. But, you know, I mean, if it's relevant to something that's going on, sometimes it's good to do these obscure characters. And and I picked Mindworm for a reason that I'll reveal next month, uh, something that Marvel Editorial recently decided about him. I have no idea what I'm looking forward to. That's going to mean either. That's why we have to tune in next month. To Bertoni's bios. Dum, dum, dum. Just All right. Next, uh, have, next month, the character will have a name. I promise. Bill. I like Bill. Uh, another segment that I love to do is called JR's This Month of Spider History. JR, we're going back 10 years ago, right? September 2002. Yes, and it just seems like yesterday. Oh, Doesn't yes. it, though? Yeah, because um, uh, there was a Spider Man movie that debuted uh, in 2002. <laughs> in fact, it was the first of its series. Uh, nice. So it it really does literally feel y'all like yesterday. Uh, even more yesterday, Amazing Spider-Man number forty-three came out. <laughs> Talk about rebooting and renumbering. Uh, if you 
do the continuing numbering. This is Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 484. Uh, it's got a beautiful-looking John Romita Jr. Uh, cover with him on a ledge in the rain with lightning and coming around. Uh, title of the um, uh, issue is called Cold Arms, written by JMS, Love art it. by John Romita Jr. The villains are Dr. Octopus and the first appearance of Doc Ock 3. Tell me about this one, JR. Yes, Doc Ock 3, also known as Carlisle Calamari, uh, based <laughs> on the name that Spider-Man gave him later. Uh, this is the first part of a pretty good Doc Ock story, actually. Uh, and um, it was during, like you said, it was during JMS's run. And it's funny, I mean, because when we were in the middle of JMS's run, it was kind of up and down for various reasons as well. But in going back through this, I noticed some things that uh, that he was doing that, uh, boy, I wish that either he or somebody was doing now. Uh, but anyway, the story starts where what appears to be a corporate CEO conning, you know, Dr. Octopus with uh, uh, an offer of doing some legitimate uh, consulting work. But it turns out that uh, he's not really a CEO. He's a con man who killed the previous CEO of the company, and he's trying to steal Doc Ock's tech. So that's the that's the gist here. Uh, that's the one subplot we have going. And the other subplot we have going is, obviously, as we know, JMS wanted to separate Peter and Mary Jane because he wanted to get to know Peter Parker first, as if he didn't have, like, 441 issues prior to his run to get to know Peter Parker, uh, as well as all the satellite titles. But nonetheless, uh, he needed to, to uh, get rid of the old ball and chain so he could learn more about the League character. Anyway, Peter and Aunt May decide to go out to California to visit Mary Jane because MJ so far MJ's a little ticked off at Peter because uh, he didn't meet her at a prearranged uh, meeting time when she had come into New York and was going to see him uh, because he was an astral, um, which is shorthand for being <laughs> he was uh, he was just in his astral form uh, because he fought a Doc Strange like villain. Uh, in the previous story arc, because if one of the knocks on JMS's run is that he would really have been writing, rather writing Doctor Strange than Spider-Man, so we get a lot of appearances of by Doctor Strange and Doctor Strange-like villains. But anyway, so Peter and Aunt Meg fly out to California, and this is highlighted by the scene in airport security where the TSA finds the web shooters, and Aunt May gets is able to uh, con them into letting them through by saying they are geriatric gynecological equipment. And, you know, let, your, let your imagination run wild with that one. Oh, uh, wow. Which uh, obviously the TSA agents did, and so for they, therefore they hurriedly put them back and let them go on their way. Um, anyway, MJ is making a movie, and she is playing the character Cynthia Lavinus. Uh, let's do all this. Nice. Anyway, the love interest of the superhero known as Lobster Man. Oh, so man, I remember this. So basically, MJ is going to play the love interest of Lobster Man, who gets killed in Act Two. So that Lobster Man, and I, I'm I'm not making this up. This is how this is how the producers explained in Mary Jane's part to her. Basically, she gets killed off in Act Two, and Lobster Man goes on all kinds of violent acts of vengeance until he meets the next love of his life in Act Three, and uh, and 
and uh, basically uh, the the guy the, the the producer says, "Do you think you can, you know, fit in as a superhero love interest?" And Mary Jane says, "Yeah, I I think I might be able to fit into it." And he goes, "Well, good, but really, it's only important that you're able to fit into the lingerie." So yeah. you know that's uh, that's Hollywood for you. Um, and the story ends where anyway, Peter and MJ meet, uh, and uh, she sees them and. Basically, uh, she's given Peter about like what two minutes to explain what he's doing there and why she shouldn't kick him out of the state of California. So that basically that's where part one ends, uh, and which is just a setup. But basically, parts two and three, it just so happens that in in the in you know comic book coincidence land, you know both Doc Ock and Carlisle are in California as well. They crash the movie scene. Doc Ock and Aunt May recognize each other. For those of us who, you know, enjoy that little uh, little nod <clears> to yeah. uh, some some of the silliest continuity ever in in, in Amazing Spider-Man. And didn't, uh, we, didn't we almost get married? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you know, they just it's like you know, Doc Ock burst in and and uh, because Carl's threatening to kill Aunt May, and Doc Ock says, "Unhand that woman!" In the uh, you know, uh, uh, classic, I'm coming to the rescue sense, and then they recognize each other. And and she goes, Otto, Otto Octavius? And he goes, May? You know, but that's about as far And, you know, Spider-Man saves the day uh, with the help of, actually with the help of Doc Ock this time. We unfortunately get another scene of Spider-Man crawling out underneath tons of rubble, which Tom Brevoort said was never going to happen again once Brand New Day started. And then we probably had a story where the New York subway crashed around everybody and Spider-Man dug everybody out of a ton of rubble. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, But in reading this, in reading this particular title or this particular arc, I, I noticed that. You know, one the the characterization of Aunt May, how sorely missed it is. You know, because Aunt May is in here, knowing Spider Man's identity. You know, she's intelligent. She serves the role that a mother figure would. You know, she offers advice. She tries to comfort. She helps him to you know she helps him make up his mind about things. And she's a uh, <coughs> excuse me uh, a good confidant. You know, rather than the dim-witted, senile old fool that everybody else seems to like to write her as. So I, re- I really miss JMS's Aunt May. This was good characterization of Doc Ock. Um, and also, this story was just absolutely cram-packed with dialogue, which is just something you don't see in today's modern comics. You would, know? You, would you agree, JR? this is the last good Doc Ock story in the last ten years? Boy, I can't think of another another one that's what well, well, I was about to say now it's it's like I'm trying to trying to kick the old wayback machine here and uh it's definitely one of the better ones in recent memory and there really well, ha- I mean, really haven't uh, been a lot of good ones uh like I mean the uh, leading the next several years we we have him in the matrix trench coat Oh yeah, and Which he's Oz- I hated that. Yeah. yeah. And he's Ozzy Osbourne Ock. Um yeah. Greasy hair and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is probably yeah. one of the better portrayals. Yeah, because he's exactly. still an egomaniac, but there's still a little bit of humanity. Mm-hmm. And he he's and he, still you know, in he's the not tunnel. Norman Osborn, for example. He's not. I'm sorry. He, he's in his green classic suit too, isn't he? Yes, he. Is. Yes, he. Is. Yeah. All right. Also came out this month, uh, Peter Parker's Spider-Man number forty-six, uh, written by Paul Jenkins, who. Yes. In, Spider-Man sex book that I showed him. Uh, <laughs> this one's got a goblin in it. J.R. Norman's back. 
A Death in the Family Part 3, art by Humberto Ramos. He has been with Spider-Man a long time, Andy. Yes, and that's the reason why you want to get this story arc, is because it's the first Spider-Man story arc done by Humberto Ramos. Um, I absolutely recommend it. It was just, it made the entire issue. In fact, uh, you know, it, you know, here, here was one of the darkest, moodiest um, stories of the Spider-Man Goblin relationship and who would you rather have draw it? Would you rather have John Romita Jr. or Sr.? No. Would you rather <laughs> have Mike Adato? No. Lee Weeks? No. Uh, anybody that can draw outside with, with the talent greater than a sixth grader? No. You know, so you get Humberto Ramos. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And in, in his I'm, defense, he's, he's grown a bit, I think, in 10 years, hasn't he? Well, years. so was my son, too, but he's still less than five <laughs> feet tall. So, you know, he's not very big, you know. Uh, I, you know, really, I guess I'm being unfair because art is in the eye of the beholder, you know, just like that, you. That's very true. I don't yeah. like his style. I mean, and he has gotten better, in my opinion. But and, and, and I can't I mean, I, like I said, I can't draw with a straight a straight line with a straight edge. So I'm really not someone to comment on the art. But. Really, I don't like the exaggerated fingers and exaggerated features, and, and I don't like people looking like simians, which, you know, there's a, you know, the, the, the great, and, and part three, I guess actually I should set this up a little bit, but anyway, uh, Nor Norman and uh, and Peter have one of those moments uh, where, you know, they, they, they say, you know, this this is really friggin' crazy. You know, eventually one of us is going to kill each other. I'm tired of playing these BS games. And Norman says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, you, I'm not, I'm the one who calls the shots in this relationship, Peter. And, and I'm going to get your attention because there's going to be a funeral. Somebody's going to die, you know? And, and of course we're thinking, Oh my God, who's going to die? Well, the thing is, the, the, the person whose funeral Norman had in mind is uh, was not who we thought it was. It was actually one of the surprises that, that we see in part four. Um, this, this, as, as, you know, Bertoni being a continuity freak will appreciate this because I know he's referenced it, uh, or something like it before. The story starts off with Norman visiting Harry's grave because as we know, Harry's dead. Really, he, he's dead. Harry's dead. So Norman is not going to Harry's grave to talk just to pretend that Harry is dead because he wants to fool the chauffeur into believing that Harry is dead and is not really detoxing out in Europe, where apparently he married two other women after Liz, but then came back and, you know, and, and into this country and, and everything like that. Because you do remember Harry was married three times. So my brain's exploding. Well, it, says, it said in Brand New Day in the character bio, yeah. Harry's been married three times. We never yeah. met wives number two or number three. Um, and they haven't been referenced ever since that initial story, those initial stories. But anyway, so Harry went over oh, to Europe. Your character of the month for next month. Yeah. Wife number two and three. <laughs> so, so basically, Norman goes to Harry's grave to con the chauffeur and believing that Harry really died instead of being in Europe, talks and marrying two other women. Okay, so we got that story. Um, but anyway, Norman is playing a war on nerves with, with Peter, going on TV uh, and blaming and, and blaming Spider-Man for Gwen Stacy's death getting flash intoxicated and putting him behind the wheel of a Osborne chemical trunk that truck that crashes into the, um, into the, the school that Peter teaches it. And, and the, the Ramos art aside, it, it, there's, it's one, it gives us one of these great images of Peter just staring at this massive Osborne truck that, you know, just says Osborne on the side and it's crashed into the school. That, that's, that's a great image. It just really is. And Norman is just messing with Peter in all kinds of ways. 
and and drive and basically trying to moving toward that final confrontation. Uh, and then finally, part three. This is where, which is this particular month. This is the part where Osborne has finally pushed Peter to the point where they decide to have this final confrontation in a warehouse, and Norman gets to play acts the death of Gwen with these dolls. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is really creepy now in, in, in more ways than one because, you know, because uh, the goblin is, you know, Gwen is saying about, you know, Gwen is asking for that big hunk of goblin love. Ooh, <laughs> ooh. Which is her title for the sense back. Oh, so, but it, this, but really, I mean, this, I mean, really it's, it, it, it's a great story. And then at the end of part three, Norman threatens to kill his grandson and, this and then like the last panel is Peter saying I'll kill you, and if you remember back in two thousand and two, this really got us psyched. I mean, I think uh, a lot of us got really psyched. It was like, man, this is really because we knew that Peter wasn't going to kill him, but we could sincerely believe that he'd be mad enough to want to by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. we just couldn't wait till the part four. Now whether part four played up to your expectations or not, that's kind of been a, a debate over the last few years because what finally happens is the death in the family, the funeral that Norman ha- was inviting Peter to was actually Norman's own because, see, I told you I was going to lose my voice during this segment. <laughs> You're doing great. Uh, You're doing great. But uh, anyway, because Norman, I think Paul Jenkins realized that Norman to be is really a miserable human being and essentially he's trying to drive Peter to kill him to put him out of his self to put him out of his misery and Peter realizes that and realizes he's not going to be the instrument you know of Norman's self-destruction you know he's going to let Norman do that all on his own you know it's like <laughs> I don't need to kill you Norman because just by letting you live and being the miserable piece of crap that you are that's going to be my punishment um yeah. So some people were disappointed. To others, it made sense. Um, a lot of people were kind of turned off because there are a lot of similarities to The Killing Joke. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. obvious Paul Jenkins has read The Killing Joke because the premise, you know, there's the premise of, well, you know, you and I are going to kill each other one day. That shows up in The Killing Joke. The disabling of, of a close uh, friend of the heroes, that happens in The Killing Joke. The you know, trying to drive the hero crazy, uh, you know, that's sort of there as well. And then, of course, the laughing scene at the end. Um, but what saves it, though, is that Jenkins does different, di- something different with these things. He still does enough different with it that it's not, because really the Batman and Joker laugh at the end is kind of, because uh, I went back and looked at the killing joke, because my brother has a copy of it, and it's like... Eh, you know, the Joker's telling him a stupid joke, and they both laugh. And not knowing a whole lot about Batman, I just, I'm not sure what Batman's laughing at, although somebody could probably tell me. Whereas in this, Norman and Peter are laughing at the mutual absurdity of their situation. You know, they've been beating each other to a pulp. They've cried. They've been mad. They've been, you know, what else is there to do now but laugh? You know, that's all the the only emotion they've got left to express. But anyway. I'm trying to think of the visual. Is this... A bearded Peter Parker and and their oh, that was earlier. That was, that was Robert Stern. Yeah, that was what? That was the prior Goblin 
Spider-Man okay. story. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm confused. Uh, is this the uh, – also, is this the one that they uh, lifted for the – no, 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 no. The, the Spider-Man 1 movie already came out. I guess that's what the one I'm thinking about also. Where yeah. they're leaning up against something and talking and wants you. Peter's to eyes are really small because he was dunked in a vat of chemicals. Like so, like Rainbow's like made his eyes kind of like he could barely open them because they're so messed up. And that's the thing with the, the, the that that last issue is that he looks different. That's what I remember from like when them when they were laughing. Both of their eyes are kind of looking different. I what do you think of this as a goblin story though, Jr. Is it one of your favorites? Oh, it's one of the best. I mean, it yeah. ha- it has its weaknesses, like you know most stories do, and you know Jenkins. I mean, and which Ash, actually, as he admitted in <coughs> the Crawl Space interview conducted by Brad Douglas, um, <laughs> you know, Jenkins basically admitted he doesn't care much for continuity. I mean, yeah, he, didn't, didn't he? I mean, he pretty well said that, didn't he? Brad, he d- he doesn't like to be limited by it if it if it, it he's got a good story to tell. Well. <laughs> that's true, but sometimes he just flat out – there's a difference between not letting it limit, limit you and sometimes flat out ignoring it. And uh, I think Jenkins kind of has crossed the edge of flat out ignoring it more than once. But he he, yeah. he was a good enough writer. We kind of let him slide on some of it. Uh, but no, this this is a great story. It's it's a great story, uh, and um, it's, it's one of the all-time best uh, uh, Spider-Man Green Goblin stories. Also came out in September 2002, uh, Tangled Web, uh, number 16. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> of course, as we all know, Tangled Web was Spider-Man series without Spider-Man. We'll put Spider-Man's name on the cover. We'll call it Spider-Man's Tangled Web, but <laughs> we won't have him be in it much. Um, so, you know, but we'll, ref- we'll reference him enough that it, we will try to make you think you didn't waste your money buying this piece of crap. Uh, Daniel Way wrote it. Leonardo Fernandez, uh, penciler, has the Hypno Hustler in it too. Yes, huh? it does. It is an identity, of course. Uh, yeah, but yeah, this is a this is as Kevin would call literally a prison ass story. Um, because <laughs> and, and and actually, prison ass is. Actually, kind of featured more than once, uh, or referenced. Yeah. Uh, just, just wow. bear with me as we reference the prison ass issues. Uh, <laughs> but uh, first of all, Tombstone—it's about Tombstone. It's a two-part story about Tombstone. Uh, apparently, he's got, Tombstone has a heart attack, which figures into the story. But really, basically, he goes to this. This it's not the raft, is it? But it's another island prison for supervillains. Yeah, and so Tombstone decides he's going to be the big man on campus. He, basically, uh, Tombstone uh, runs afoul of the kangaroo because, as we know, yeah. at, at, because as we know, one of the most fearsome foes in all of Spider-Man's <laughs> history is the kangaroo. Wait a minute, did he and, die? And they all die. They all die. <laughs> the spot dies at the end of this one. Remember, and then he oh, comes no, back and comes back. Oh yeah, the spot. They all, yeah. But anyway, this kangaroo though is like huge. He's even bigger than Tombstone, and he speaks a strange language, which is Australian, because neither <laughs> Tombstone nor the reader can understand what the heck kangaroo is saying <laughs> during the whole thing. Uh, oh, but no. anyway, so so kangaroo makes the Tombstone <laughs> makes the Tombstone. I'm thinking of a pizza now. Makes Tombstone. <laughs> So Tombstone decides he's going to he's going to assemble a crew. And so he picks the fiercest baddies that he can find in this prison. The Spot, the Rocket Racer, the Hypno Hustler, and something fat dude. Okay. 
awesome. Uh-oh. Oh hell. So, uh, so any, okay. So anyway, here's our first prison ass moment coming up. <laughs> the I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this much, guys. Uh, the tombstone says, do you guys have any weapons or anything we can really use? And, well, no, but the hypnos hustler says, I have some Vaseline. <laughs> <laughs> and tombstone says, wait a minute, that's not, oh, well, that might come in handy. <laughs> and then and then later it turns out that Tombstone has Tombstone has been able to collect some weapons including a pair of scissors. <laughs> Vaseline and scissors. I, I don't do not preempt the joke. Okay. <laughs> Tombstone, how did you get those scissors past the guards? Tombstone oh. says that's where the Vaseline came in handy. Oh! Uh, not prison ass. ass. <laughs> not making it up. Oh, OMG. <laughs> Tombstone has this convoluted plan to escape from prison and get back back at the kangaroo. But uh, anyway, there's, there's like these characters that uh, are kind of hanging in the background. They're obviously the prison queens. And the... We're not talking about Freddie Mercury. Uh, <laughs> I guess we are talking about people who are similar to Freddie Mercury. Uh, oh. But anyway, anyway oh. so these guys, obviously, if you know what, well, you know what they are. Anyway, yeah. So as Tombstone is organizing this jailbreak, um, the kangaroo, and I don't have the issue in front of me, but the kangaroo is trying to get somewhere, and he crawls through a vent, and he gets stuck. Of course. Uh, and the queen's finding. <laughs> oh, no. And and, oh. Then, and then the last panel on that page is the kangaroo's full face with his eyes and mouth wide open. So, oh. prison ass moment number two. Kangaroo was raped? That's, oh. I, you, you know, now, don't, don't let me bring Senator Aiken in. Into this and talk about whether or not it's rape or legit rape or. or, or you that. love Missouri politicians, don't you, Jr. State <laughs> <laughs> Senator Aiken's rum. Uh, <laughs> is never going to let me live Aiken or Mel Carnahan down. Go ahead, Jr. <laughs> so Tombstone escapes. The spot shows up because the spot there's this convoluted plot with the spot, you know and. And uh, the spot shows up, and uh, Tombstone breaks his neck. Okay, so the spot's dead until he shows up later in Brand New Day. God damn. <laughs> God damn. It was a uh, an out-of-continuity tale. Uh, and speaking oh, sure. of tales, the kangaroo definitely got some in the wrong way. But anyway. <laughs> uh, they were looking for the wrong pouch, yeah. If you wonder. Uh, now, now, you know, I'm not opposed to adult stories i'm not opposed to adult humor but i don't know you know when i read a story that says that has spider-man's name on it and spider-man is referenced a lot i don't know i kind of like it to be a story that i can leave laying around and my son can pick up and i don't have to explain stuff to him so if you want to know one reason why tangled web didn't catch on as a series yeah this is a good one right here yeah i i thought uh web spinners was a better one uh, done in one or whatever. This actually went on for a while. I have no idea. This lasted 22 issues. 
you know, yeah. it's one of those things where you just wonder if Marvel editorial sits up we're on drugs at this time. You know, it's wow. like, hey, let's come up with a Spider-Man book that doesn't have Spider-Man in it. And, yeah, we'll sell a, you know, we'll sell a bunch of them. Oh, and let's start out by having Garth Ennis, a guy who admittedly hates superheroes. Let's have him write the first story arc. Oh, I remember that. Uh, you know, you know, Tangled Web start off week two with the art, at least, too. Anyway, what you going to do? Tangled Web's We've, biggest contribution is, I think, what, issue number four with the Kingpin that Greg Rucka wrote. Yep. Uh, truly terrific story there. And then the very, I think it was the last, one of the last ones, was Tangled Web the one in which uh, Zeb Wells did the Jonah one-shot? One yes. Maybe. Yeah, I have that. I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, it's like issue 21 Behind or something. Like that. Uh, yeah, that was good. If you miss the rest of Tangled Web, you haven't missed anything. So. Right. Uh, also came a lot of Spider-Man coming out yeah. uh, this month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You okay? That's, what, uh, that's why I'm losing my voice. Too much Spider-Man. How much Spider-Man there is there? Spider-Man Blue, number three. What a segue. You would never number guess that Marvel was trying to promote itself at the expense of a major motion picture, would you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this one has a beautiful-looking Tim Sale, Mary Jane cover. Oh. Uh, written by Jeff Loeb, art by Tim Sale. I love this one. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, JR, yeah. Think of this one? I will have to admit, I, I, I this isn't my favorite mini. I, I, I and I, well, I'll explain that. But I guess to set it up, Spider-Man Blue was the brainchild, as as you said, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. That that duo is famous for doing some of the other quote-unquote Marvel color uh, books: um, Hulk Gray, Daredevil Yellow. Did they ever do Captain America White, or was that just talked about? They did a one shot. They did zero. They did number oh, zero, but I don't think they ever figured out how to make that not sound racist. Uh, well, <laughs> That's true. Well, they, what they could have done was they could have bo- they could have boxed it with that uh, with that miniseries, what Captain America Truth, taken care of. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and they also did, I guess, more famously, actually, they did Batman: The Long Halloween and yeah. uh, Superman for All Seasons, which I think DC fans probably remember very fondly. Um, the premise behind this six-part miniseries was that it re-envisioned Amazing Spider-Man 40 through 49, and but it was wrapped around the overarching plot of, of Peter first starting to hook up with Gwen Stacy, and yeah. you know where they first fall in love. That's kind of the overarching plot. Uh, but it, you know we also have you know the first meeting of uh, with Mary Jane Watson. And Flash decides to join the army, and all the supervillains. I mean, it plays pretty loose with the original continuity is established, because now Craven the Hunter is behind all the supervillain goings on uh, during this series. Um, this issue in particular actually is actually primarily focused on Mary Jane, because at the end of part two is where we get the uh, Tim Sales version of the Face of Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. And then in issue three is where she meets the gang, and of course it's like she just absolutely knocks all their socks off. They're just they're they're just bunch of like a bunch of slack jawed troglodytes, you know. Who is this girl? You know, Flash right. Harry can't help but drool over her, and the girls can't you know can't help but be jealous of her. Uh, and so you know she makes a big impact right away on on both them and and on Peter <laughs> in more ways than one, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but you know where continuity slips, you know. You know, in the original continuity, she talks Peter into going to take pictures of the rhino. Here, Peter's already beaten the rhino, so it's the lizard that uh, they go after. Um, and surprisingly, this lizard talks, because as you know, if you read Shed, the li- Spider-Man never heard the lizard talk. 
until shit. <laughs> As we all know. I, I guess that, you know, Loeb and Sale probably, well, you know, you know I, I don't know why they took it on themselves to make the lizard tough because he had never done that before. Um, so anyway, this issue actually, other than the Mary Jane, you know, the, the, the intro to Mary Jane, it's kind of fairly pedestrian. Uh, you know, Spider-Man meets the li- faces the lizard, turns him back into Kirk Connors. At the end of the issue, Harry's waiting on Aunt May's doorstep and saying, "Hey, Pete, you know, my dad's got this building or got this apartment. You want to live with me? You know." And uh, I mean, you know, it, it's it, after all, it's it it more people people can relate to you uh, coming to live with me, uh, a guy you barely know who has a very rich father who just happens to own a building near campus. People can relate to that. But they can't relate to you being a superhero who knows Tony Stark, and then Tony Stark puts you up in his house. You know, they can't relate to that, but they can relate to you just meeting this random guy who's got a rich father. Okay. Anyway, so, um, but anyway, but, you know, Harry tells Peter that, you know, hey, is Mary Jane, are you dating Mary Jane? And, and uh, Peter says, no, I'm not dating Mary Jane. And Harry says, good, because I want to screw her. And he says, <laughs> And he says, and actually, that's good. My God. Because I, actually, good. That's great because Gwen's been addressing you with her eyes, you know. And and of course, you know, Peter's going blah blah blah, blah and that's where part three ends. Um, wow. What? I, Not, a lot of people like this mini. Like I said, I don't because I don't really like revisionist spins. Um, and when you read the original material and then you go back and read this, this thing moves like a glacier compared to all the stuff that Stan and John Romita packed into mm. their original run. I mean, this this has near not near the story. Right. But I can see why people like it. I mean, it, it, it basically... It's pretty to look at, too. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was about to say, I was going to get that in a minute. It basically, for, I guess a lot of us old guys like the, the, the convoluted continuity, uh, but for people who are just looking for a good story to read, they probably like the fact that it strips away a lot of the excess and just focuses on a few core concepts and it has kind of a beginning, a middle and an end in the end is Peter kissing Gwen, um, you know, and, and getting that relationship started. So I, I can see why people like it. As far as Tim sales art, I'm not, he's not one of my favorites. I don't like the way he draws guys because it seems all the guys have crinkly foreheads and stuff, but <laughs> his women, his Mary Jane and Gwen are beautiful. And some yeah. of these covers are gorgeous like the like as brad alluded to issue number three has spider-man swinging out of mary jane's backside which sounds (laughs) sounds kind of vulgar but it's not it's really a cool looking cover there's another one with mary jane and gwen which is really nice looking um it's one of those it's it's one of those series that like i said it's not my favorite but i can i you know i can i can see recommending it to somebody who says hey i'm interested in spider-man what was you what what, what would be a good story to read about him i i could see you giving him this one right i would not recommend the next series we're about to talk about uh spider-man get craven written by ron zimmerman oh man <laughs> Whoo, oh, man i was about to say what what if we'd only had george for one more uh what <laughs> could have had him oh my god there is horrible book there horrible is horrible book. and zimmerman fought a lot with the fans on the old smb board remember that yeah this this boy this brings back so many stories and ancillary this is part of what was what was, and I don't want to say kind of wrong because I think Zimmerman was on his way out by this time. Obviously, as as this piece of crap uh, illustrates, <laughs> you got to remember back in two thousand two, you know, or or early, you know, in this time, 
I mean, Joe Casado was right and rightly so trying to bring in some fresh writing talent to Marvel. Um, and he, he, he must've owed Ron Zimmerman a favor or Ron Zimmerman had pictures or something. <laughs> Zimmerman had written in Hollywood. I mean, Zimmerman was a right. I mean, you know, the, the guy had writing credentials. He had, you know, and, um, you know, he'd written for several shows. He had been on the Howard Stern show occasionally. And, you know, as recently as two years ago, he was banging Cher. Uh, but then she done. <laughs> I'm not All lying. Right. What, what, I, I'm not lying. Go Google How random is that? Google it. Uh, <laughs> as of two, uh, recently as two, 2010. But she dumped him for a motorcycle uh, biker 20 years her junior. But anyway, that's another matter. But then again, I suppose someone would say, who in Hollywood hasn't banged Cher? I guess. So really, maybe that's nothing. Right, like Kevin? Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm hey, nor deny. She likes it. Holy cow! Talk it. Yeah, and we and we and we said we wouldn't let this one get off track, right? Uh, Drop uh, <laughs> the member writer of the comic bang share. How do I not follow up? <laughs> <laughs> if you remember, if you remember Aloysia Craven. Jason uh, DeMatteis introduced him as the second son of Craven, <laughs> and there have been many. Uh, oh, yeah, he, you know, oh, he and Norman are are trying are competing in the Breeders' Cup as we speak. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so, but when, when DeMatteis introduced Aloysia, Aloysia was not a criminal like his old man. He had no grudge against Spider-Man, but he was considering the fact that at the end he murdered. Calypso and was laughing maniacally about it would kind of indicate maybe Aloysia had a couple of screws loose. Well, Ron Zimmerman obviously liked this character for some reason, but mm -hmm. he decided that he was going to give him a makeover. So instead of a half-psychotic jungle man, he turned him into a trust fund baby. And <laughs> trust fund baby and pal of Spider-Man. Oh, man. Because... Basically, you know, uh, Spider-Man shows up at the bar of No Name or whatever and, you know, and meets Aloysia. And Aloysia says, oh, by the way, I know you're Peter Parker, you know, and, you know, and uh, and so then they become buds, you know, and they go and they fight the chameleon and they banter and bicker like buds, you know, and it's a, like a real bromance. And, and in the in the first part of Get Craven, Aloysia is trying to figure out what to do with his life. You know, and so laying there with his girlfriend in bed, Timber or whatever her name was, uh, Timber. you know, <laughs> so he's probably getting a Woody when he was with Timber. <laughs> uh, he decides he's going to become, you know, and, and so he called because he and Spider-Man are such buds. He's got Spidey on his speed dial. So he calls Spidey and says, help me decide what to do with my life. Spider-Man's. Says, well, why don't you go make movies? And Craven says, yeah, I'll go be a movie producer, um, or something like that. I'm I'm oversimplifying it, obviously. But anyway, that's the gist of Get Craven. Is this character goes to Hollywood to make movies? And but Zimmerman writes this as it's not a Spider-Man story. It's a satirization of Hollywood. Yeah. And honest to God, why any Marvel thought anybody would buy or write read this is beyond me. It's uh, from what little I've read. It's it's a bunch of. I mean, it, obviously, it is. It's a very sadistic, sick, you know, bitter look at Hollywood, which may be fine for an issue, but I can't see making a mini series out of it. And seven issues. It was. Went on, I'm sorry. It's a seven issues. It went seven months. No, 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 no. 
No, that's that's yep. that that's it was supposed to go seven issues. It went six. It did. And uh and uh, apparently uh, you know and and you know it because it was so well received and sold so well. Uh in fact, it ends so well because what happens is the Vulture and Al be- decide to become a tag team tag team vigilante squad where they go and beat up bad guys, and Spider-Man sits with Timber and Craven's uh, dog and says, isn't this really cute? Al and Vulture are going out beating up bad guys. And then the dog says at the very end, wasn't this comic supposed to be seven issues instead of six? Ah, uh, gotcha. That, no, now, that's the truth. What that's, happened to, that is exactly uh, how it ends. How, how, what happened to this... Craven family member. Did he oh, eventually? Oh, I forgot. They meet Scott Bayo as well. He goes and rents Scott Bayo's house, and we meet Scott Bayo too. Chachi, did did this Craven die in the Great Hunt or whatever? Didn't yeah, he get turned into a lion? Alluded no, to that, that uh, Skittles Penny Hooker might have killed him. That, who did? Oh, Skittles Penny, Penny Hooker. I got that <laughs> right, Kevin. Right? No, yeah, that's Chris. Yeah, um, but you get it right. Who? Um, who t- got turned into a lion? The the Grim Hunter, Vladimir. Oh, okay. There are too many. That, those Russians be getting busy. It's all the vodka. <laughs> <laughs> the vodka. Zimmerman. Uh, Wikipedia entry. Jr. You 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 might know this show because I'm sure your son watches it. Apparently, he's like the consulting producer and the writer for Shake It Up, which is a really horrible Disney sitcom. Oh God, I've seen enough horrible episodes. Oh, well, considering that one episode concerns one of the characters farting and the other one uh, blowing snot, uh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I would guess everyone was behind it. Yeah. Another um, many that came out this month. You're good. Lord, really? This is, this is like Craven's producing the line of Spider-Man this month. I'm not even half done, Kev. Holy, uh, holy, 2002. Uh, quality of life. This is. I think uh, Martha Connors dies in this one, doesn't she? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Arthur Connors gets cancer and dies. This is a significant event in the life of the lizard, you know, yep. because he's such a multidimensional character. Ask Kevin. Um, <laughs> now, quality of life actually is kind of interesting right now in a number of ways, because in a way it actually does kind of feed into the story we um, that we just talked about earlier during the reviews. Uh, no, Kevin, what are you, but, are you retconning? <laughs> But uh, it was also a completely computer-generated um, uh, four-part miniseries, uh, and it was written by Greg Rocca. So it was a gimmick, but it was a, it was an in, it was an incontinuity gimmick, you know, that was written by a writer of some credibility. It's not the greatest story, but it it, uh, it is basically um, what it was was Martha is dying from cancer caused by some chemical runoff of this plant. That grows Franken food, for lack of a better term, and go or for going, you know, uh, biogenetically engineered food or whatever. Martha got cancer from all the chemicals. So and so the CEO, rather than just trying to settle with Kurt or whatever, decides the cheapest thing to do or the best thing to do is to hire a half woman, half snake assassin to kill him. Uh, oh which, when you think about it, okay, hire a blood-sucking snake-like lawyer or hire a half-woman, half-snake hitman. I, you know, I don't know. I might go with a half-woman, half-snake assassin, really. Uh, oh, did I insult lawyers? I, did, I didn't offend anybody who's a lawyer, did I? I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, He's good. Anyway. <laughs> 
kind of, what kind of lawyer could he be when he never heard of Professor Kingsfield anyway? Uh, oh, anyway, um, let's see here. Another paper chase reverence, huh? Okay. Anyway, Kurt wants revenge, and he can't sue the company because no lawyer will take on take on this company because they're just too big and powerful. So he does the next best thing. He turns into the lizard to try to kill the guy. Um, in this particular issue, uh, Spider-Man steals some research from the company to prove that the company was behind Martha's cancer. He tries to give it to Kurt, uh, uh, but Kurt says, well, that's not going to stop her from dying anyway. Billy gets sick, you know, but they're able to get to him and treat his cancer early, which, I, you know, I guess, I don't know, would it be better to be eaten away by cancer or to be eaten away by your lizard dad? I don't know. I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, he has that choice, I guess. Anyway, so we get the, the final confrontation to be set up uh, in, in issue number four. Uh, yeah. What's interesting about this story, though, really, is that in this story, the lizard is clearly an instrument of Kurt Connors' anger, frustration, and vengeance. You know, it's not, oh, my God, I can't control myself. I'm turning into the lizard. And then the lizard says, well, I'm going to create some kind of serum to raise an army of lizard men and take over the world. No, Kurt turns into the lizard almost willingly so he can commit, so he can, so he can kill this guy. Uh, and, and that's what the lizard's motive is. So Kurt obviously is in control of the lizard and the lizard's motives, which is kind of a factor in Paul Jenkins' story later. And is actually kind of rolls into this uh, latest lizard story arc where we yeah. find out that really maybe the lizard isn't a separate and distinct entity. Um, so, you know, quality of life, eh, it's bargain bin. It's not bad, but it's bargain bin material. Yeah. And also, I think, I could be wrong, but the the at least the computer program that they used to make this miniseries, they eventually went on to use to do the MTV series because the, the images look very similar. It's you know it's worth. Looking. I think I read that somewhere, but it's worth looking for. I mean, there's been a lot of crap Spider-Man miniseries. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't a bad one, and also it's visually unique. You know, yeah, as opposed true. to the other ones. You know, and not visually unique as say you know the guy who did the Spider-Man Deadpool uh, story in Brand New Day. That's really visually unique, but not in a good way. Um, <laughs> this, this is this. You know, you you could do worse if you came across this one fairly cheap. Also, that came out this month, the Spider-Man and the Black Cat Evil That Men Do miniseries. Oh, yep, dude, there's shit ton more. Uh, Kevin Smith wrote it. Terry Dodson wrote it. There was yeah, a month I think where that did come out. This is the last one where we actually have much of anything to talk about. Um, yeah, this is <laughs> this is famous. <laughs> this is famous no, in, more, in more ways than one. But yeah. the story itself did not start off as a train, the train wreck it eventually became. Um, I guess so little, but the, I think, I, I don't know, you know, and I may have to, you know, rely on Josh or somebody else to get into the history of this, but I think this was supposed to be originally Kevin Smith's warm-up for taking over as regular writer of Amazing Spider-Man. Because I think they were going to reshuffle the Spider titles and Smith was going to get amazing, and JMS was going to get like a new, as of yet untitled, Spider-Man story uh, or Spider-Man series. He was definitely um, the title. I remember the interviews, and I remember him talking about like the elements that would appear in his title, and Felicia was going to be one of them. Um, so, if this was his audition, obviously he flunked it <laughs> because between this and Daredevil Father. Which I don't think is it's oh, still come out yet, has it? 
No, it's called Daredevil Target. Target did the father. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think I don't know. I don't think he and Marvel are going to be working together for some time as a result of those two uh, stories. Yeah, they haven't. They haven't gotten back together. Uh, this one has Felicia raped. I think it puts a rape in her origin well, or something. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're starting to get it. You're starting to get ahead. You're almost as bad as the time that you wanted to know who the mysterious vagrant was in Ish, Amazing Spider-Man 156. You know, you know. I'm trying to set it up. You know, I say here's Come on, Uncle JR, vagrant, tell me. and then you go, hey, who's the mysterious vagrant? All the same time you're saying, don't spoil the end of Amazing Spider of the Avengers for me because I haven't seen it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, issue, the first three issues of this came out, and then it was like three or four more years before the rest of the story came out, and it was a complete 180 from where it had been going, and it was it was a train wreck. But the, it, the story as it originally began, except for a few moments which didn't make sense, wasn't that bad. First yeah. of all, it's got Rachel and Terry Dodson art, and Beautiful. I love Rachel and Terry Dodson's art, particularly the women. You know, I've said before, I think their women all kind of look the same, but it's still a nice-looking woman no matter what it is. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's one of those, There's it, it's more of a PG-13 Spider-Man because it's, it is a little bit more mature, it is a little bit more edgy, and there is a lot of sexual tension and innuendo and, and references between Spider-Man and the Black Cat, but it doesn't, in my opinion, which, you know, that and... A dollar ninety-five will get you a venti at Starbucks, but it, not a comic book. It does not a comic book anymore. But it doesn't quite cross the line into the utter stupidity and foolishness and you know and uh, and uh, college boy humor that Spider-Man and the Black Cat's relationship is now currently, because Felicia is is still flirty and nasty and sexy, but. But that's the way she is, and she also does that to make Peter uncomfortable because Peter's a square. And she knows Peter's a square, and she likes to make him uncomfortable. But she cares about him. You know, she cares about him as a person. She's matured as a character, you know, to the point where – and they and they do revisit the fact that he's he was mad at her because he loved – she loved Spider-Man and not Peter. And she says, okay, fine, I'm over that. But, you know, you took me for granted when I saved your ass a whole bunch of times too. So, you know, she does care for him, you know, in the midst of all this, you know, kind of – uh, sexy talk and stuff, but it's not now where the two of them are just, you know, hey, let's go have mass sex in a hotel room. Uh, <laughs> so it was, but like, like, and then like Brad said, yeah, it, it, when it comes back, it goes completely off the rails because it's, yeah. it's rather, it starts out as an interesting drug story um, because they're both, the Spider-Man and the Black Cat are drawn into it because acquaintances of theirs uh, have OD'd on this particular type of drug. Uh, and so as they try to unveil and find out who the mastermind is, you know, part three ends with Felicia appearing to get raped. Uh, but then part four finds out it never happened. And then it becomes like a history of mutants in America. And then we find out that Felicia <laughs> became the black cat, not because she had daddy issues and her father was a cat burglar. It was because some dude in college raped her. And it's like, where the heck did this come from? You know, yep. and it's almost like, you know, what we were getting actually a fairly intelligent uh, story about, a you know, with with an adult couple. And now it it, it becomes another mis misogynistic man, the idea of what a woman, you know, what she would do. You know, why does a woman, you know, become a crime fighter or whatever? Well, obviously she became raped. 
You know? Oh, so, yeah, that's awful. Oh, that's awful. Uh, there's a lot, bit more, not that significant, Spider-Man. We can blow through these real quick, JR, oh, if you've read them or not. I didn't read most of them. Uh, uh, Deadline, which was a Daily Bugle supporting cast miniseries. Catherine Farrell, I think, was the main gal. Cat Farrell, yeah. Cat Farrell, yeah. Yeah, I know nothing more about Deadline other than that's what Brad Douglas has to meet on a regular basis at <laughs> at, his, at Joplin Ferry yes, TV at, station. At, at my main job. Uh, Jim Starlin, who created Thanos, came back for the Infinity Abyss. Yeah, which is uh, actually the story of me trying to look inside my wife's brain and see if there's anything in there, and all I see is the Infinity Abyss. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, Daredevil Volume Two, Number Thirty Five, Bendis and uh, Malieve. Spider-Man makes an appearance in this. I don't know if you read. Yeah, that actually, one. I did read this one because this was okay. during a period of time where I was actually reading Dennis's, uh, Dennis's, Bendis's Daredevil. And it's, it's, I love Bendis's Daredevil. This is where this run. is the, the first story arc where Daredevil has been outed by the FBI agent who was looking for a quick payday from a National Enquirer type magazine. And this particular issue, I guess, well, Mr. Hyde shows up at Murdoch's apartment wanting him to come out, and Spider-Man shows up and picks a fight with Hyde, and then he and Daredevil meet, and then Spider-Man, you know, swings off, and then the rest of Daredevil's story resumes. But this was yeah. a really good – I really did enjoy this run, actually. Uh, I, I started reading it because it, I looked at the first uh, issue of where, Dare, where Murdoch is outed. I said, man, this is some really good stuff, and stayed with it for like the next three or four trades. Yep. Uh, he was also in Thor, uh, Volume 2, Number 51, written by Dan Jurgens and Tom Rainey, called With Great Power. Mm, no, the only thing I know I, about this one is that Thor sounds like somebody's sore with a thief impediment. Uh, <laughs> I think this is the, the, the King Thor storyline where he uh, replaced Odin and stuff like that. What, what a bad run. Uh, the last one that came out this month, lots of Spider-Man this month. Uh, well, yeah, he just called, had a movie, so we're going to plaster him and everything, you know. My goodness. Uh, the Order, written by Kurt Busiek and, and Matt Han- Hanley. This uh, was a miniseries that came out after the uh, 12 issues of Defenders by um, Kurt Busiek and, and Eric Larson. They tried to uh, do a miniseries called The Order, and Spider-Man made a several-page appearance in this one. Did you read The Order? Uh, well, the only orders that I read have been the ones I've been taking from my wife for the last 24 years. So. <laughs> Didn't read that one. So that is a wrap-up. Thank you to SamRuby.com for helping us with the research of this. Oh, man, I feel I feel as out of breath as Kevin after about a, a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, I want to give another shout-out to our sponsor, MailOrderComics.com. An example of their great prices is on Avenging Spider-Man number 14. In this one, Spidey takes a trip to the Savage Land, and he teams up with the Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy. Well, the cover price is $3.99. Mail Order has it for just $2.47, which is 38% off the cover price. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com. Thanks for listening, gang. I'm your host and webmaster, Brad Douglas, for the SpiderManCrawlspace.com.